Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Why is Publication Bias Worse in Some Fields Than Others? So publication bias is real. In the social sciences, more than one study finds that statistically significant results seem to be about three times more likely to be published than insignificant ones. Some estimates from medicine aren't so bad, but a persistent bias in favor of positive results remains. So what about science more generally? Now, to answer that question, you need a way to measure bias across fields that might be very different in terms of their methodology. One way is to look for a correlation between the size of the standard error and the estimated size of an effect. In the absence of publication bias, there actually shouldn't be any relationship between these two things. To see why, suppose that your study has a lot of data points. In that case, you should be able to get a very precise estimate that is close to the actual population average of the thing you're studying. On the other hand, if your study has very few data points, you're going to get a very imprecise estimate, and that includes a high probability of getting something very much larger than the actual population mean, but also a high probability of getting something very much smaller. Over lots of studies, if there's no publication bias, you're going to get some abnormally high estimates, some abnormally low ones, but in the end, they'll cancel each other out. If, however, small estimates are systematically excluded from publication, then you're going to end up with a robust correlation between the size of your standard errors and the size of your effects. The extent of this correlation is a way to measure the extent of publication bias in a given literature. Now, a downside of this approach is that it's only going to work in disciplines where this framework makes sense. That is where research is primarily about measuring the effect size with noisy data. But enough disciplines do this that it's a start. Finelli, Costas, and Ioannidis, 2017, obtain 1,910 meta-analyses drawn from all areas of science, and they pull from out of these meta-analyses 33,355 data points that come from original underlying studies. For each meta-analysis, they compute the correlation between the standard error and the size of the estimated effect. And then they do this weighted average across the different meta-analyses to generate a sort of average for a whole field. And when you do this, what it, the way to interpret it is, in general, the more positive your estimate, the stronger is uh, the correlation between standard errors and the effect size, and that implies stronger publication bias. Now, in the newsletter, there's a figure, uh, but you can't see it. So I'll just tell you that uh, you see in this figure the social sciences, that is uh, psychiatry, psychology, economics, and business, and just something called social sciences. They all seem to exhibit significant publication bias among the largest of the areas that are studied. Social science and psychiatry, psychology, the uh, size of that publication bias is pretty precisely estimated, so you can very confidently rule out that uh, there's not actually zero. With economics and business, you can't be so confident. There's a very wide confidence interval about the extent of publication bias. There are other fields, too, that seem to exhibit precisely estimated uh, publication bias. Clinical medicine, pharmacology and toxicology, neuroscience uh, behavior, and molecular biology and genetics, although these all have smaller sizes than in the social sciences. There's also some fields that seem to have potentially quite large publication bias, but the estimates are very noisy, and we can't rule out that it might be kind of small or non-existent. That includes fields like environment and ecology, agricultural sciences, plant and animal science, and microbiology. Finally, there's a bunch of fields that the estimate indicates very little or no publication bias. Uh, those include biology and biochemistry, computer science, chemistry, engineering, geoscience, and mathematics.
Now, as noted already, this method of measuring bias might not be appropriate for all fields, since it's rigidly defined in terms of sampling from noisy data. A different paper by Finelli from 2010 uses a simpler but more flexible measure of publication bias. So Finelli analyzes the random sample of 2,434 papers from all disciplines that include some variation of the phrase, test the hypothesis. For each paper, Finelli determines if the authors of the paper argued that they had found positive evidence for their hypothesis or if they had not. And if they had not, what does that mean? That means they didn't find evidence for the hypothesis or they found evidence, but it was contrary to what they expected. Now, as a rough and ready test of publication bias, he just looks at the share of hypotheses in each field for which positive support is found. Most fields find somewhere between 75% and 90% uh, of the hypotheses that are mentioned in the papers have positive support found for them. But they're not all the same. There's some systematic differences. Applied fields tend to have uniformly higher uh, share of hypotheses with positive support, somewhere between 85 and 90%. Within uh, the pure sciences, physical sciences have the lowest level of uh, support, less than 80%. The social sciences tend to have the highest, above 85%, less than 90%. And biology is somewhere in the middle. Taken together, these two studies suggest the social sciences have a bigger problem with publication bias than do the biolog biological sciences, which also tend to have more problems than the hard sciences. And so we can ask, why? Why is that the case? So let me run through three possible explanations before looking at one of the few studies that can provide some evidence on whether these explanations are true or not. So note that there's probably more possible explanations, and also these are not mutually exclusive, but as far as I can tell, there's not very much work on this question. And if you know of other work on this, please email me, because uh, I'd love to hear about it. First, variation in publication bias could be related to the nature of publication in different fields. If it's easier to draft and push an article through peer review in some fields than in others, then that might mean in some fields you may end up getting more results out there, even if they're not out there in a top-ranked journal. In the social sciences, we have some evidence that we reviewed in a previous newsletter that the biggest difference between null results and strong results is that most null results, that is hypotheses where you don't really find any evidence for them, they're never even written up and submitted for publication. And maybe that's because it's just too much work for too little reward to write a paper that everyone's going to ignore or is never going to get through peer review. In a field where writing up and publishing results from an experiment somewhere is easy, maybe it's worth doing even if the paper is largely ignored because it's just, at least it's going to add an extra line to your CV. A second explanation. Variation in publication bias could be related to the nature of data in different fields. It might be easier in some fields to tightly control noise in data or to obtain many more observations than in others. Now in economics, a big sample might be, say, hundreds of thousands of observations. But in physics, the Large Hadron Collider generates 30 petabytes of data per year. In fields where clean data is plentiful, it might not be the case that when you run an experiment, sometimes you find support for hypothesis and sometimes you don't. You just always find the same thing, or at least you always come to the same conclusion about statistical significance. If that's the case, if you're in that kind of field, there's not going to be much of a relationship between the size of standard errors and effect sizes, because within the range of observed standard errors, everything is either significant or not significant. Lastly, it may be that fields differ in their criteria for deciding what is publishable. 
The root cause of publication bias is that journals want to highlight notable research in order to be relevant to their readership. But what counts as notable research might differ across fields. Suppose that empirical research is most notable when it provides support for specific theories. In that case, a question in which multiple competing theories make different predictions might exhibit less publication bias. If there's a theory that predicts a null result, and another theory that predicts a statistically significant result, and we don't have good evidence on which theory is correct, then either result is notable and it's going to help us understand how the world works, and consequently a journal should be more willing to publish either result. It might be the case that the hard sciences, the physical sciences, for example, have enough sophisticated theory work that when there's a null result, it's surprising because we're asking questions where we sort of have a theory that tells us what's going to happen, and when we get something unexpected, that's publishable. Maybe in the social sciences, we're not there yet, and so we just sort of assume as a background assumption that most hypotheses are false, and if we find a null result, well, that doesn't tell us anything new. To shed a little light on these questions, let's look at one more study of differential bias. We've seen some, bi some evidence that bias varies across major disciplines, but we also have some evidence that bias varies within a particular discipline, and it's a discipline that I know pretty well, empirical economics. Ducoliaugas and Stanley 2013 looks at 87 different meta-analyses from empirical economics and measures the extent of publication bias in each of those literatures using the approach already discussed, where standard errors are compared with effect sizes. They classify literatures as exhibiting little to modest selection bias, substantial selection bias, and severe selection bias, and find plenty of results in each of those three categories. So what drives different levels of bias in economics? In this case, it's less likely that variation in publication bias within economics is driven by different publication standards within the different literatures that these meta-analyses are covering. Because in many cases, these literatures are publishing in the exact same journals, but just on different questions. Ducoliagas and Stanley provide a bit more evidence that publication bias might be related to data, though. My subjective read on the quality of data across different economic fields is that macroeconomics has the toughest time getting lots of clean data. Ducoliagas and Stanley do find publication bias seems to be more extreme in macroeconomics than in other fields. But this paper is really set up to test the third explanation. The differences in the range of values permitted by theory explain a big chunk of the variation in publication bias across different fields. But to answer that question, you have to have a way to measure the range of things that theory would accept. How are you going to do that? Ducoliagas and Stanley take a few different approaches. First, they just use their own judgment to code up each for each meta-analysis does it pertain to a question where theory predicts empirical results can be positive, negative, or null, or do they sort of systematically go in one direction? Second, they use their own reading of the meta-analyses, or they draw on surveys where such surveys exist, to assess whether there's considerable debate around this area of research. Now, they're going to claim that the first measure is non-controversial, in the sense that most economists, they think, would agree with how they code things up. But they acknowledge that that second criteria, measuring the extent of debate, that's subjective. By both of these measures, they find that when theory admits a wider array of evidence, there's less evidence of publication bias, and the effects are pretty large. A field whose theory they code as admitting positive and negative results has a lot less bias than one that doesn't. The difference is large enough to drop from severe selection bias to little or no selection bias, for example. 
But maybe we're worried at this point that they have the direction of causality exactly backwards. Maybe it's not that wider theory permits a wider array of results to be published. Maybe it's that a wider array of results leads theorists to come up with a wider set of theories to accommodate this breadth of evidence. Dukoliagas and Stanley have two responses here. First, there's a difference between the breadth of results that get published and publication bias, and they're going to try to control for the former to really isolate the latter. After all, it is possible for a field to have both selection bias and a wide breadth of published results in the literature. Their methodology can separately identify both, at least in theory, and so they can check if there's more selection bias when there's more accommodating theory, even when two fields have an otherwise similarly large array of results to explain. But in practice, I do wonder if controlling for this is hard to do. So I do like the second approach they take to address this issue, because there are some theories in economics where there just really isn't much wiggle room about which way the results are supposed to go. One of them is studies estimating demand. Except for some exotic cases, which you can click on to learn more about in the newsletter, economists expect that if you hold all else constant, when the price goes up, demand should go down, and vice versa. And we even permit ourselves to call this the law of demand as economists. Economists almost uniformly are going to believe that apparent violations of this can be explained by a failure to control for confounding variables. They're going to strongly resist the temptation to derive new theories that predict demand and price go up or down together. Moreover, it isn't controversial to identify which meta-analyses are about estimating demand and which are not. So for their final measure, Dukoliagas and Stanley look at estimates of bias in studies that estimate demand and those that don't. And they find studies that estimate demand exhibit much more severe selection bias than those that don't, even more than in their other measures about the extent of debate or the direction, you know, the kind of results permitted by theory. In other words, when economists get results that say there's no relationship between price and demand, or that say when demand goes up, prices should go up, they assume, or it appears those results are less likely to be published. So at least in this context, if your theory admits a wider array of notable findings, then you seem to have less trouble getting findings published. Now, of course, this is just one study, so I do want to be cautious leaning too heavily on it. Indeed, you know, I don't know. Maybe other people have looked at the exact same thing, didn't get the same results, but couldn't publish it. I mean, that's mostly a joke, but only mostly. So thanks for listening. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.